You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Turn, if you will, to Psalm 71. Let's begin there again tonight as we emphasize our theme verse for the year and appreciate your participation uh, in this day and being open to what God uh, wants to do uh, in the days ahead if he tarries his coming. Um, several of you shared that the uh, first session, our Q&A, um, today was very insightful. And uh, one of the things that Heidi said to me this afternoon uh, was, um, uh, Dave, did we record that? Do you know? Okay, we didn't, post, we didn't live stream that. We may make that available in some way. But uh, Heidi was saying that's a great conversation starter. Um, and so maybe with your kids or your grandkids or just another young person you talk to, say, hey, I was just sitting in a session where we were talking about some of the things you guys navigate, how you think and process things. And so maybe that'll lead to some conversation. But uh, grateful for what God is doing uh, in our midst today. Psalm 71, let's look, if you will, at verse 18. Uh, the psalmist says this again. Here's our theme verse for the year. Now also, when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not, until I have showed thy strength unto this generation and thy power to everyone that is to come. So we're talking about today um, regenerating and, and making that our theme and our emphasis this year. And we talked about this morning the first three priorities of a regenerating church. And tonight we want to talk about the second three. And so let's pray and ask the Lord to help us tonight. Lord, thank you for the privilege it is to serve you and to serve you and to walk with you and to worship you with others, and specifically those in the room and to maybe some folks at home watching tonight as well that are under the weather. I pray you would encourage them. And uh, Lord, thank you just for the privilege to have a part in passing on our faith and uh, your promises and your commands. And uh, Lord, just who you are to the next generation, what a privilege to do so as others have done for us. And I pray tonight as we look at the second um, three of these commitments, these cyclical, constant uh, refrains and um, just um, recurring themes, um, Lord, that we need to make important and keep important in our ministry, I pray that we could do so more effectively this year. I do pray for the young people in the room, those that are college students and young adults, as well as our teenagers, that you would just encourage them, Lord, that we're doing our best, those of us not in those categories, to understand, to relate, to encourage, and to, to even challenge them, Lord, we're needed, um, so that we might leave to them and they might shoulder up to the responsibilities of leading in your kingdom. And I would pray that you'd be honored in our time tonight, give us practically what we need, May tonight not just be something we get stirred about, but may it change us, may it grow us, and may we have greater influence and impact for you that outlives us as we're faithful to your word. Bless this study, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, we just got through the end of the year, and uh, a lot of folks make a year-end donation for posterity only. No, there's taxes coming, right? And uh, some of you may have done that. And one of the things that's renowned in church circles, I don't know if this is as true nowadays, is people will donate stuff to the church that they would not give to their, wor their worst enemy, okay? We want to donate something to the church. And I always tell folks, I don't know if this sounds calloused or not, we reserve the right to refuse, okay? You're quote-unquote blessing a donation to the church, especially with our, our uh, facilities here. We have very limited storage 
And so we just have to be very efficient. And even sometimes Pastor Nathan has to remind me, we don't, where are we going to put that? Okay, that's often our conversation when I have some big idea. Um, but anyway, the other day, I think maybe Danny Wee shared this online. I saw this. This is a picture. I'll show you the picture, and then here's the caption. So here's the picture. All right, we talked about used mattresses this morning. If you weren't in the service, uh, you know, we would never take a used mattress from somebody, but we pay over 100 bucks a night to sleep on one, a used mattress. Okay, so we talked about that this morning. But here was the, the picture and then this caption. Thank you. Thank you so much to the anonymous donor of this, quote, new couch for the youth room. Definitely an upgrade, okay? Thank you so much for that. Um, can I just say to you as it relates to the next generation, we cannot half-heartedly and we cannot give to them leftovers of our time, energy, and resources and expect, expect to inspire them um, to live and to sacrifice their own lives for Jesus Christ. It's going to cost us deeply. Uh, it's going to require great sacrifice on our part. And so I hope tonight that God will stir in you and maybe areas where you're giving leftovers or used couches um, and you need to give more of yourself. May I say this as we begin tonight, the next generation can sense whether you actually care, whether you actually care about them, whether I actually care about them, and also if you care about their future, specifically the part of their future that you're not going to be around. Um, They know whether you actually care about that or not, and everything about your influence hinges on whether you actually care or not. Um, And so I encourage you to think about where maybe there needs to be some growth in this area. had an interesting nugget that... um, the Lord gave me a few week, uh, months ago. I was in Atlanta. My brother is there serving the Lord in missions, and uh, we were at, I was at a conference uh, with him. And I don't know if you're familiar with a guy named Charles Keene or not, Dr. Keene. He probably should not be traveling at this point. In fact, one of between two of the sessions he was preaching, he stumbled and fell, and we were all kind of worried, did he break something or whatever? But he's been in southern Ohio for a number of years, and had part in Bible translation work. In fact, Dr. Fielder would have worked under him for a few years, the gentleman that we support in Bible translation work. Pastor First Baptist of Milford for a long time, a very uh, effective ministry for the Lord. But he made a statement, and I want you to think about this. This is so, in my view, a profound thought that has some very practical implications. He said this, God has not created anything new since day six of creation. And then he said this, listen to this, he has, stored in it the, uh, he has stored in it the seed of every living thing. Now I want you to think about that. This is, a, this is a thought you need to think about for a moment. Everything that God wants to bring to life this year is found in seed form already in our ranks. Like, if I were to ask you tonight, what what are you begging God and praying for God to do? And this starts with our teenagers and all the adults and young people in the room. Where do you think the seed of that is? Where's it going to germinate? What's going to germinate? And can I just tell you, the answers to our prayers and burdens, and especially the plea and begging of our heart, God, would you send revival? Would you renew us? Would you regenerate your people? Is found in seed form, probably in this room. In fact, I would say directly it is. And so I want you to think about tonight where there may be some seed form things that God wants to water and and cause to germinate and grow as it relates to uh, the next generation. So here's the question again, in a day of aging and dying churches, how do we intentionally buck the trends with intentional dependence upon the Lord to pass the faith to the next generation in a way that outlives us? Let's talk about the final three 
cyclical commitments. And I'll show you this, this uh, chart again, not original with me, and we're kind of using this to provide our outline, and then we're just going to some text that God laid on my heart. Keychain leadership, remember we talked about that this morning. If you weren't with us, you could catch that later on your own on YouTube or Facebook. Keychain leadership, empathy for today's youth, and then take Jesus' message seriously. We talked about those three this morning. Um, this evening, we're going to spend the balance of our time talking about these last three that keep us from getting out of this cycle and growing old. Instead, we keep um, regenerating. We keep growing young uh, for the glory and honor of God. All right, so let's talk about the first one there. Number one, we need to fuel warm community or warm relationship uh, with other uh, believers. Go to Luke chapter 2, would you, for a moment? And let's look at three texts tonight as it relates to these final three commitments. Luke chapter 2, in verse 41. Luke chapter 2, and verse 41. And what's hysterical about today is we're talking about, you know, investing intentionally in the next generation. Here's how Heidi and I wound down our morning. She says to me, I have no idea where Landon is right now. This is like after church. It's just her, me, and John Candle who's locking up. And she's like, I don't know where our youngest son is. I'm like, how ironic. Of all days, um, you know, preaching about, you know, keep close to teens and kids. And the preacher who just said all this stuff doesn't even know where his kid is. Is he still alive? Is he in Wayne County? Where is he at? He, he's fine. I guess he had set something up with the Moors that Heidi forgot or whatever. So he was with the Moore family. At least that's his story. Um, and uh, just being connected. Have you ever noticed how much our culture and society just fragments the family? Heidi and I talk about this all the time. Her and I have to work to just ride in a vehicle together. Um, just kid stuff and schedule and, and the family gets fragmented and the church gets fragmented. And so for us to reach the next generation, to impact them and connect with them, we have to regularly fuel and invest in warm community. Here's what I'm fighting as a pastor, and you probably are too. God's people don't want to get together as much as they used to. And when they do, it's out of duty. I don't sense that in the room tonight and in our ranks. But we, if we are not in that category, we are the exception. Um, we want to just do life our way and keep people at a distance. And if we do that, we're also pushing away the influence we have uh, in young people. So let's look here in Luke chapter 2 uh, in this example of community that's at least alluded to early on in the life of Jesus. Go to verse 41. <laughs> now his parents went up to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he, this is Jesus, was 12 years old. So he's just entering now the adolescent phase. Obviously a different era of human history would have looked a little different in this day. They went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Okay, so before you judge the Snowds, the mother and father of Jesus, you know what I mean by father, they also struggle in this area, okay? So we are in good company here, all right? It's probably the only connection at least I have to this dear couple. If you will, look now at verse uh, 42. I'm sorry, verse 44. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, all right? So this is a day later. I just find that very interesting. Went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinfolk and acquaintances, acquaintances and when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. It came to pass that after three days, all right, so we're now, how many, four days. Can you imagine the, the vibe in Mary's heart and Joseph's heart at this point? 
um, found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and answering their questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. So let's talk about quickly a couple things that just jump from the text that I think give us some direction as it relates to young people. First, verse 41 and 42, Mary and Joseph were not misleading Jesus. It was actually something that every family would do at the age of 12. They would uh, go as they did every year, but this year was an important year as age 13 would have been when now there's covenantal responsibilities and relationships for a young man. And so they're preparing and positioning Jesus for um, this key phase of his life. They were doing all of the right things. And yet somehow they lost track of him. And if you notice in verses 43 to 45 that we just read, there's kind of some unanswered questions. Who took care of him? Um, did he take care of himself? It's possible because he's, he's lecturing the astute scholars of the day uh, in the Torah and in the law, and he, had, he obviously knew his way around those teachings. But is it also not likely that others in the family and in the community, at least wherever he was at that given moment as he made his way back or as he stayed where he was, there were folks who looked out for him, folks who provided for his physical needs. Did he cook his own meals? Did he provide for his own uh, needs during these days of disconnection from his parents? And I think the answer to all of the questions uh, in the text is communal. They're communal answers. People who uh, looked out for and connected with Jesus. If you go down to verse 52, it says he increased in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and man. Jesus is in his developmental stages um, as a young man, and, and I believe you see alluded to here, at least in the text, that others were uh, a part of that process, and we touched on that this morning uh, in our Q&A. Here's my question to us as we reflect on this text tonight. Is the experience of young people in our church like that of Jesus? where when others are not able to step up and provide either in a singular moment or it's a more chronic thing, is the church a place they feel seen, heard, known, welcomed? Are they included or are they segregated, segregated from the life of the church? Um, I don't know if you ever had like, just because we just had Christmas, where you have like a kid's table and then you have the adult table, you know, the kid's tables where stuff gets spilled and there's nothing under it that is majorly compromised by the spill or it's just for the younger, lesser family. I remember being at the kids' table, and then the moment where you get welcomed up to the next level, okay, of family life. The church should not be a place where that's the vibe we give to our children uh, and to our teenagers and young adults, that they are relegated to a lesser position. Yeah, there's growth and maturity that needs to happen, but they're welcome at the table um, in any way that we can. Um, I read the other day a really sad statement. I don't know if you ever thought about what it feels like to be a teenager in a, a gospel-centered home or not, but it does have its challenges. It has its benefits. Um, and I was reading of a man who has left the faith. Probably he did so at high school graduation, if I had to guess, based on the numbers. But he made this statement just a couple of weeks ago. He said this, one of the worst things about growing up evangelical, and that term I'm not a term I use regularly, but he uses that in a broad sense. Listen to this statement. One of the worst things about growing up as an evangelical is knowing that you're always only one wrong step away from losing your relationship with your parents. Um, I'm not saying we don't confront, we don't challenge, we don't deal with, but there ought to be community that's stronger than a singular mistake by a teenager, Right? Um, that's not compromise, that's Christ-likeness. And so we need to give them, we need to invest in warm community. 
All right, let's talk about a couple of applications as it relates to this. Number one, jot this down there in your bulletin. Uh, and this is counterintuitive, but so true. Eliminate a focus upon the cool factor. So our responsibility is not to be the coolest church in town or to be the most edgy or whatever term you want to throw at that, but eliminate, we need to eliminate as a church, a focus upon the cool factor. In fact, listen to me, they don't, even those who are seeking Christ, they don't know Him as Savior, they're drawn less to cool and they're drawn more to warm. So it's less about being a cool church, it's more about being a warm community. Um, And so that's very insightful for us as a church. We don't need to have every gimmick and gadget and, you know, the newest fog machine model that just came out, you know, pumping across our stage or whatever, some pulsating whatever rhythm as the preacher has his walk-up music before he preaches. You know, that that kind of stuff actually is a turnoff. Um, They've seen all of that, and they've seen often behind the facade of that. And so it's not about drawing them or keeping them through coolness. It's actually through just simple, warm community. In fact, the number one reason that a young person will stick with a church after high school, they will say this, because it feels like a family. That's the number. They don't talk about anything else. They just talk about the family feel, that they feel connected uh, to people. And we mentioned about our mentor program. Uh, If that's something you're interested in, it was good to see so many that signed up this morning. Um, I challenge you to be a part of that if God leads you or lays that on your heart. Um, the other day I read an article talked about these are things churches don't need to do to connect with young people. Just listen to these quickly, lest you think we need to be chasing after this. It's not about a certain size. It's not about a big modern building. It's not about a big budget. It's not about a quote-unquote contemporary worship service. It's not about watered-down teaching. And it's not about a hyper-entertaining ministry. They're actually often turned off by that. Um, and so we just need to be warm and friendly and welcoming We need to eliminate the focus upon being cool. All right, number two, aim for warm, warm, peer, and intergenerational friendship. But I want to just park here for a second tonight. Aim for, our aim should be for warm, peer, and intergenerational friendship um, and relationships. Um, categorically, all it takes for a a relationship to be said to be intergenerational is that there's at least 15 years between those two people. That's the technical way of referring. So intergenerational would be, that's the division, is you're 15 years older or younger than the person you have a relationship with. Um, And I think we need more of those. If you only have friends that are your age and your stage, you're missing, and, and others around you are missing the hues and colors of those unique interactions that come when it is a bigger range of age between us. Um, just a thought. Have you ever thought of the, um, like if I said, list some of the friendships in the Bible that most come to mind. What's an example? One of the first ones that comes to mind to me would be David and Jonathan, right? I was reading the other day. This is fascinating. Um, an author I was reading, and I think, I think at least he's not way off. He's not saying it's absolute fact. But his belief is that David and Jonathan, that their relationship was an intergenerational friendship. In fact, if you look at the chronological sequences of David and Jonathan, it's possible Jonathan was as, old, was as much as 30 years older than David. Like I picture two young guys in the woods, and here's the soul, sword, and here's my, you know, my cloak, my tunic. Um, it's very likely that Jonathan was significantly older than David, and yet David... Uh, was loved by Jonathan. By Jonathan, He loved him as his own soul, 1 Samuel 18 describes. So we need more of that. We need more of that intergenerational 
uh, friendship in our life. Here's my question to you tonight. Do you have someone that you view as a peer and as a friend who is significantly younger or older than you? Um, Your generation needs it from a previous one, and others that are coming after you need that from you. I alluded to it this morning, but all of us are working ourselves out of a job as a parent, going from authority and dictator, if you will, to friend. Um, And so we need to be working at that, both in our families and in our church. I would challenge you this year, build a friendship with someone significantly in a different generation. And what this does is it allows you to connect with teenagers who are looking for a relationship that they can't find in culture. Um, I would ask you, and there are some exceptions to this, but culture tends to, pop culture tends to trend by generation, right? You're either in or you're out. And it's a lot of it's defined only by the stage of life that you are in. And so the church is the exception to that um, as we look for and as we provide relationship for others. In fact, if I were to say to you, you know, do you ever, I do, like, what's up with teens today? They like this, or here's the newest fad, you know, on TikTok or whatever the thing beyond that now that's the newest craze or um, thing they all know about that I have no clue about. Most of that is just a craving for relationship, right? Something they all share, something they're seeking. And so the church can provide um, some answers to that. They can provide some meaningful responses to that uh, when we are warm not just toward our peers, but toward those that are outside of our generation. Um, And I think the benefit of cross-generational influence and mentorship is not one way. Um, Those of you who signed up already for our mentor program, you're going to get as much out of that as the young person will. If you get assigned to someone, it's a two-way street. We also need their influence in our life. And so uh, may we be open to those kind of relationships. Um, Here's a flaw in our thinking, and I'd like you to think about this. This has been something I've been chewing on. Have you ever sometimes felt as a parent that your kids are more for you than you are for them? Like where they expose your pride and your selfishness, you know, where you're like, wow, like out of the mouth of babes, they just, they know, they understand this sometimes better than I do, and I'm not saying they always do. Um, Here's just a thought. Maybe think about this. Faith is not just passed down. It's also shared around. Like we always, you know, I am now older than you, and so I will pass down to you the faith. A lot of times it works the other way, right? It's a two-way street. And so may we be open to that in areas that God gives us in our church, out of our church, uh, for the glory and honor of God. Um, Young people today are looking for relationship, and we we have the privilege of providing for them a constancy, a consistent friendship and community that they cannot find in the world. Everything else around them is changing, we can be consistent as a warm, friendly community. The warmer we become as a church, the younger we will become as a church. And I mean that in the right sense. Um, We will connect more with young people. We will minister to them if we are warm. Um, We had two families that we were able to bless this year for our alms tree giving, and it was just neat to see. I mean, you guys just tore those tags off, as tell Miss Risa today. She kind of took the lead on that. Um, and one of the teen girls of the families, my wife was just happened to standing there in the lobby, and she said, but we, some of you gave gifts to the family, not just to the foster children. It was just really neat to see. And one of the girls said, this is the nicest church ever, as she picked up her bag. Somebody had given her something. Um, and that's what we want. We want that vibe to be given off, not just to other adults our age, but to all of our, um, those that we impact. All right, number two, go to Mark chapter 10. Can we spend a moment there as well? Mark chapter 10. 
and verse 13. A second cyclical commitment that if we'll keep doing this, uh, we can be regenerated as a church in the days ahead um, for um, God's purpose and God's plan. Mark chapter 10 and verse 13. Mark chapter 10 and verse 13. Christ here is in the midst of his ministry and Verse 13, um, he's just dealt with, um, as you see earlier, some of these other stories that kind of contrast with um, now this situation. He's talking about divorce and adultery and all of this. In the midst of all these heavy topics, verse 13, and they brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Number two, the second commitment we need to make is we need to prioritize young people and families everywhere. Um, and we talked about this morning the initiative with the public schools. And I, you know, as I said, it's very early on, so we'll see what specifics are involved in it. But we'd love to be a part of that. Pastor Dave and I have talked for years about doing a Bible club or something in the the school, and uh, this is in a way that maybe we can prioritize young people, but we need to be committed to that and focused on that on a regular basis. I give you, I'll, let me give you an example of the opposite of that, okay? And this is just from history, maybe a way for us to relate to this. I was reading a book, it was about the Fords, the Ford family, all the way back to Henry Ford Sr. and how he invented the automobile and, and all the things that came after. Their family had so much just dysfunction. Alcoholism was rampant in um, subsequent generations. Um, Henry Ford himself was not a good father in many ways to, Henry, uh, to his son, and, and then as it passed on to different ones after him. Um, but his obsession was with the Model T, right? That was the car. The iconic just broke into that market and introduced that to the average man, a reliable vehicle at a price that the average man could afford. And uh, the book I was reading said this, listen to these words, although the cars, so he's talking about the Model T, although the car's appeal had begun to decline after a decade on the market, Ford still regarded it as the fulcrum of his personal myth and therefore was unchallengeable. Ford's original goal had been to turn out a Model T every minute. So his um, manufacturing mindset as well of... of, of um, cranking out products that were reproducible and replaceable. Uh, in 1925, he was turning out one, a Model T, every 10 seconds. But people were buying other cars. Years later, when the Model T was only a memory, Henry still couldn't understand why it, had been, why it was no longer being driven. And he said this, listen to these words. This is where we get if we're not careful. The only thing wrong with that car, he said to an associate, was that people stopped buying it. That was the only problem with it. Um, and if we're not careful, we start to prioritize our pet project or our pet issue or who uh, give, what gives us our identity. And as a result, we lose our influence. We lose this regenerating gift and process that God blesses us with. And here's my challenge to you tonight. And it's going to hurt when you hear it probably if you're like me. If you're consuming passion is not perpetually connected to young people, your influence will die, right? 
If you're consuming passion, whatever your pet thing is, whatever you're passionate about, if it's not perpetually connected to young people and not the same ones it was 10 years ago, it's got to keep being renewed. If it is not perpetually connected to young people, uh, your influence will die. You're aging. You're aging out. Um, And so we have to be honest where maybe that's happening. I'm not talking about please the crowd and do whatever they want. That's what I'm saying. But our passion must be connected to young people and to their families and anywhere that we can. All right, now let's talk about this text here. So you have the disciples who are all, man, Jesus is fielding these big questions and he's doing all these miracles. And then you have these little petty or at least insignificant <laughs> insignificance coming and asking for a favor and they dismiss what God values. So in verse 13, you see people Uh, This would be mothers and fathers, maybe even older children, bringing little children. Uh, The word padai that's found here uh, is a word used that would range from babies to preteens. So these were not just just babies. They were also um, those that were going into adolescence. They brought them to Jesus that he might touch them, a visible sign of God's favor, uh, not just upon their present lives, but their future life. And the disciples, what do they do? They rebuke them. He doesn't have time for you. He's got bigger things going on. He's got uh, more important things that he's focused on. And again, the disciples think only in human cultural categories. The youth were looked down upon or dismissed um, in this day. I was thinking about that as it relates to our church, and it's just me sharing my heart. I love to do baby dedications. It's one of my favorite things to do as a pastor. And can I tell you honestly what concerns me? It's been a little while since I've done one, Right? So come on, guys, let's go. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But, but there ought to be, that ought to be a regular part and rhythm of our church, right? And that is not something to slow down the service or um, something that, that just hinders us from doing something else as a ministry. That ought to be something that we treasure and we value. So here are the disciples. They, um, they are um, dismissing uh, what Jesus is about to affirm. All right, so then verse 14, Jesus sees this. And Nosa says he was much displeased, and that <clears throat> probably does not say it as strongly, at least as would jar us as it should there. He is extremely displeased, um, and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. In fact, this word suffer here, and then he says, and forbid them not, is a double rebuke. Suffer them. And do not forbid them. And so he, he, he directly confronts them with these two negatives, this double negative command, rebuking them that they did not value what Jesus valued. And so he welcomes these children, and he encourages them to do the same. Um, when we prioritize young people everywhere, we are in a good place because we're in the same place that Jesus is. In fact, I think Jesus disproportionately, at least in his day, probably was viewed as prioritizing young people in ways that the average person thought they're just kids, that they're just young people. The disciples were not elderly men themselves, many of them young and and inexperienced, and yet he invested in them day after day, year after year. George MacDonald used to say, I've heard him say this a few times or read that he said this, he did not believe in a man's quote-unquote Christianity if boys and girls were never found playing around his door. Um, and there are a lot of theologians that have lived and died and gone on or are currently in our world claiming to be these great influencers and no children and no young people want to ever be around them. 
Um, there, ought to be, there ought to be a connection of our theological positions and profile that actually draws and connects and, and brings into our influence, our sphere of influence, uh, the next generation. And so may our Christianity be such that young people are drawn to it. And so Jesus here clearly points his disciples in that direction. All right, a couple things of practical note that we're praying about doing and working at this year. I'm going to ask for your partnership in. Number one, eliminate token lip service to how much young people matter. Eliminate token lip service to how much young people matter. You do know that they can sniff out when you don't really mean what you're saying, right? Um, Dads, you know, you can say whatever you want to your kids, but they know whether you really care for them and value them. And it's not just about how many hours you're putting in at work or how many things you buy for them or whatever the case may be. They know. Um, They know. Um, And so we need to be willing to eliminate just saying it. Instead, just, just let it speak for itself. Like, you don't need to say it. You don't need to tell others what you did for your kid for Christmas or where you took them or what you saved them from. Let them say it. Let them share it. Eliminate the lip service trying to prop up uh, what you believe uh, or what you claim to believe and do for the next generation. Let it speak for itself. And when people know that you care and, they, and they, you don't have to tell them that, it engages them in a way that otherwise is not possible. In fact, it invites them into that same mission, invites them into the same ministry that you're doing for them. Now they want to share with others around them. Um, Our kids and youth ought to feel like they're co-participants in the life of the body of Christ rather than just kind of a junior or inferior, lesser, or even future member of our ranks. Pastor Dave talked about this morning, but the kids are not, the youth are not just a part of the future of the church, they're part of the church today. Um, One helped lead worship this morning, one helped lead worship tonight, and several of them have served in different capacities, and so we need to view that as a priority in our ministry. Um, it has to be a lifestyle commitment, and so I encourage you to think about where your life, lose the lip stuff and just live it, just live it, um, and encourage me to do the same. All right, number two, include them tangibly with support and resources. Include them tangibly, tangibly with support and resources. So if, and it's tempting to do. Um, for example, let's buy our seniors a coach bus, you know, our senior saints, and then the teens get the leftover couch. And I'm not saying it ought to skew far the other way as well. I'm just saying it needs to be equitable. It needs to be uh, thought out. The teens see those things. Um, The hinge point separating churches that age and those that regenerate is those that regenerate allocate resources, energy, and attention to teenagers and young adults. I mean, we shouldn't quibble over parts of the budget or schedule that invest in them. It ought to be something we do regularly and tangibly um, in our ministry. And there's a lot that we do in this area that I am encouraged by as a church. Um, And here's another thought maybe to think about as well. You cannot minister to children and to teenagers, especially those that are outside of our ministry, without also ministering to their families, right? Like we can't sidestep parents to get to teens or to children who are, don't know God or are away from God. And so our ministry needs to be family-oriented. Uh, we need to minister to families. Um, and as we do so, we reach their children. We reach uh, the next generation. Uh, what we do on Wednesday nights with our youth choirs and other things we do on junior church on Sunday mornings, all those things are to minister to families and to reach them uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Um, and then maybe just this final thought we'll move on as it relates to this. This is why our own walk with God matters because God is going to reach our kids through our families. And so what we do as a family matters. Um, that's why I keep harping on the small group thing. You know, does your, does your teenager know that your, li- your name's going to be on the list of the small groups? Or they know it's never going to be on there? Or we could talk about other areas as well. Are you someone that consistently models uh, this walk before them and tangibly support, tangibly resource the things that prioritize our kids? Um, and so just to ask you to think about maybe areas where you can grow in that for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. Um, all right, last statement, we'll move on under this. Maybe jot this down. It will require this supporting of young people, will require the older generation to at least give up some of their preferences. Um, and I will quantify that in just a moment or qualify that. This will require prioritizing young people and young families will require us giving up some of our preferences. What I'm not saying by that is you can't have your own preference in your own space. You have sole liberty. You can do, and that goes both ways. You cannot do something or you can do something before the Lord, right? As can I. But as I mentioned in our series, as it relates to Romans 14 and 15, the tyranny of the weaker brothers suffocates churches where we got to accommodate and, and keep everybody feeling okay about what we're doing. I'm not in any way proposing we're making drastic changes, but we have to be very careful to not hold on to preferences and in the, in, the, in the process lose our influence with the next generation. I want you to think about this. By holding on to our antiquated or only personal preferences, we ensure the death instead of the survival of the things that aren't preferences, right? Because they'll throw the baby out with the bathwater. We have to be very, very careful where we dig our heels in in a corporate sense. Again, you and your personal space and me. I have some convictions I've never even told you about that personally I will never do or I will always do. That's just part of my walk with the Lord. But I don't impose that. I don't try to integrate that into our culture uh, as a church because we must reach every generation. The gospel ought to be able to reach any person on the planet at any place in human history. And if our version of Christianity has a cultural texture to it, to it that pushes those people away, that's not in this book, we're coming between them uh, in the Lord. And so we've got to be willing to prioritize young people by at least acknowledging this is a preference. And I'm willing to be flexible where I need to uh, for the next generation to be reached. A friend of mine that I respect greatly said this just the other day. Again, I've heard him say it a few times. He said this, a generation that does not allow margin for the next generation's cultural vocabulary and doctrinally safe ideas is destined to watch them walk away. And so may we be willing, if it's within the bounds of Scripture, to give room for God to grow and work uh, uniquely in the next generation. And, and I think we need to look at the verse. Would you just quickly go to 2 Corinthians 12? Because I think sometimes we want the kids and the youth to get on our page, which actually runs counter to um, Scripture. 2 Corinthians 12. Just one verse here might get you to think a little more specifically in this direction. First Corinthians chapter, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 14. Paul here is very, excuse me, very careful to set up this sequence of who should provide or who should look out for whom. 
He says this in verse 14 of chapter 12, verses we're more familiar with earlier in the text. Behold, the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours. All right, I'm not after your stuff. I'm not after what you can give to me. He says, I seek you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And there's, there's other applications in this context, but my point is just this. If anybody is to give, if anybody is to sacrifice for the benefit of a multi-generational relationship, it is the one ahead. It is the senior in the relationship. It is the one who is older, the one who comes uh, before. I don't know if you noticed, Pastor Dave is like up on his little, you know, whatever he's got going back there right now. Um, he just kind of leaned in right as I mentioned his name, like, so you all will see him. But we've been building this sound booth, and we still got some work to do. But one of the joys of working on that la- this last week is my dad and mom were here. Dad was here every day, uh, Tuesday through Saturday, and mom came a couple of days. And so he probably put in about 50 hours on that. You know, you know when you walk by stuff, it looks nice, but you, until you try to build it, you don't know. And I had several days or afternoons I could help him and and he'd call me and say, I'm going to be there at 7 instead of 8 in the morning, and I need this and this and this. And so we had a full week. And, uh, but it was just fun to, to work with him some. And, and he, he invested in me. He invested in our younger church. He invested in Pastor Dave and what he's doing there and, and what's going out of our church as we try to get the gospel to the world. Um, we need to invest in people. We need to invest in things that advance the cause of Jesus Christ. And so maybe we'd be willing to do that Um, where God impresses us to do so better. One author said this, we'll move to our last point, rather than fighting the next generation, find, fuel, and fund them instead. Invest in them. Don't hoard, invest. And if you'll do that, I guarantee you will draw, not out of selfishness, but out of partnership, many to uh, and under your influence. All right, lastly, Luke chapter 10. Let's go there for a moment. Luke chapter 10 in verse 29. Luke chapter 10 and verse 29. Appreciate your patience with my voice and sniffles and other things we'll not mention, the unmentionables. Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 29. So here we have Jesus teaching on several things that prompt this young man to say, or this man, this lawyer to say in verse 29. So we're in Luke chapter 10. Verse 29, but he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then we have the famous Good Samaritan story um, that follows. All right, here's the last commitment tonight. Number three, be the best neighbors possible. Be the best neighbors. Um, I don't know if this is funny to you. I find this hilarious, but there was this picture. I just look at it for a second and see if anything strikes you as funny. Somebody put this, the caption was, dude needs to make up his mind whether he wants to be seen or not, okay? So he's wearing camo with a reflective vest over top of it, okay? The dude needs to make up his mind. Um, As it relates to our faith, uh, we need to be willing to be neighborly. And as we are neighborly, it makes our faith visible. Nothing turns off the next generation to our faith more than our avoidance of, at all costs, anything that we have to do to help someone else. Um, We need to be neighborly. We need to do so more um, consistently. 
Um, and we're not good at this. I'll be the first. We've moved quite a bit, and the temptation is just, well, we'll probably move again and not connect with our neighbors. Uh, but Heidi bought a bunch of, um, like, the cans with popcorn, different varieties of popcorn in it, and she wrote just on the top, Merry Christmas from the Snows, and Landon, it was the weekend. Remember when it was, like, whatever, negative 60 it felt like? Um, and of all days, Landon went out and dropped those off at every door of our neighbors because everybody's home, you know, and freezing and a lot of them didn't open the door, which I found hilarious. He just set it there on the door, and then later you saw them come out and get it. Um, but, but being neighborly um, is something I think we need to work at, not just uh, for the benefit of our peers, but for the benefit of those who come after us. Um, think about this statement. I, I just the other day saw this. Before a person says yes to Jesus, they most often say yes to a pastor and to a church. So before a person says yes to Jesus, they first say yes to someone they trust or some, there's something that draws them. And, and I think as it relates to us as a ministry, that's convicting to me. Those in this room that come regularly or those in our community that don't know Jesus Christ Savior, could it be they're not saying yes to God because they're really struggling to say yes to me, the vessel that's trying to share Christ or model it before them? And the same is true of our church. There's also the positive that. So if we can be neighborly, they can say yes to us which then may lead down the road to them saying yes to Jesus. Isn't that exciting to think about? And to do that with the next generation, to do that before the next generation uh, is equally important. Um, and so in verse, 20, <laughs> verse 29, the lawyer was not trying to actually get a, an answer to the question. He was, he was trying to evade, if it was an evasive tactic on his part, to avoid the conviction um, that had come in his heart through Jesus' teachings. And so in verses 30 to 35 that we don't have time to read tonight, Jesus gives this story uh, about um, the Good Samaritan, um, an answer to the question, and who is my neighbor? And in verse 36, after giving this story of these three, and only one of them actually helped out the man who was in need, he says, which now of these three thinkest thou who uh, was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves. And he said, he that showed mercy on him, then said Jesus unto him, go and do likewise. And so the admonition uh, of just being a neighbor versus trying to duck and weave and avoid any neighborly responsibility. And here's the idea. If the good Samaritan could be a good neighbor, then we can be a good neighbor. Um, the one that no one expected to do right in this situation, if he could be neighborly, then so can we. Um, it started off as a question, who is my neighbor? At the end, the opposing question or probing question is, to whom do you need to prove yourself as a neighbor? Who do you need to model uh, this before um, in, in your influence? Um, and, and maybe just a final thought in this area, and then we'll get to a couple of um, summary things of application why is it our young people are rejecting our faith? Um, that, that's the question I keep asking. Why? Why are they? Why are they deconverting? Why are they abandoning, especially at, high, at the end of high school, their faith? And here's just a thought, and this isn't true in every situation, but could it be the hesitancy of our young people to go all in on our faith has nothing to do with our doctrinal positions, has nothing or little to do with our doctrinal positions, and everything to do with our unneighborly disposition? So it's not our positions. It's our disposition. And I just want to encourage you to model your faith, not just with lectures, as we talked about this morning, but with sacrificial neighborly efforts uh, to those that are around you. 
All right, lastly, it's been a few minutes talking about some application in this area. Number one, eliminate the condemnation of the world outside the church walls. And this is a key point. We didn't talk about this in our Q&A. We ran out of time. But one of the things that came up with the teens was this. They often get the vibe or feel the vibe from us when we're warning them about certain influences or relationships with the world that we're being judgy or critical of them uh, when maybe our motive is to just protect them from certain influences and alliances that would be hurtful to them in these formative years. But in the process, we give off the vibe that we are being critical or condemning the world uh, around us. And what young people are tired of, and I hear this all the time, um, and I've heard it from some of those in our church through these things we've just provided, communication from them, they're tired of hearing from the church only who and what we're against. And they need to hear that. I'm not saying they shouldn't hear that. But what are we for? You know what I mean? Like, are we just going to attack things this year? Are we going to serve people? Like, are we going to meet needs? And I'm not talking about a social gospel. I'm just saying that people respond. They're moved by, and so are our young people when they know not only what we're against, but also who and what uh, we are for. And so this, this neighborly mindset helps to compensate for where that vibe is given off. Churches that regenerate recognize this careful dance between fidelity to Scripture that the Bible does clearly teach and knowing and graciously loving their neighbors. I can love someone without loving their lifestyle and in any way affirming it. I can serve them and disagree with them on absolutely everything. And what does that do? That actually heightens the significance of the service to those who are watching, those who are impacted by it. And so don't miss those opportunities by turning your nose up at those around you who may see things either mildly or majorly differently. Um, and what that does is it earns a hearing, it earns an audience both with our young people and with those in our culture around us when we simply um, serve them. Um, here's how that applies. You say, Pastor, how does that apply with our young people in the world? Here's the thought. What if, do our teenagers, and I could ask them this tonight, and I, I think you might be surprised by some of their answers, but if they would meet someone or they know of someone right now who would be opposite of almost everything we are as a church, at least externally. How do they feel that person would feel if they came here? You know what I mean? And I love some of them said how we welcome anybody, and so that was encouraging. But do they honestly, do they know they can count on us to have the right spirit and to be there to serve them? In no way, if there is a major issue that needs to be addressed, that we don't do that. But I'm just saying, can they count on us? Um, to have that spirit of neighborliness that it's not just about the destination but the journey that these teens are on and encouraging them in the process. Uh, so we want to position ourselves as a church that uh, is neighborly instead of condemning to the world uh, outside of us. One in three grounded but growing churches, as far as regenerating churches, pointed to their open and inclusive attitude toward outsiders. That's what led them to stay young and to grow uh, and sustain uh, connection with those uh, outside of their walls. John 17, Christ prays not that the Lord would take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from evil. We're not to be out of the world, we're to be in the world, we're to be connecting with them through ministry and service. All right, last thought on this, and we'll get to the last point. You remember the, prodigal, the story of the prodigal son, the parable? We talk about that story all the time. To isolate from the world and demonize it will lead to only two options. Think about this. This will bring conviction to you as it does me. It struck me as I was reading through it the other day again. To isolate from the world and demonize it is to produce either the prodigal son 
because they feel like we're keeping something from them that they deserve and want. Or number two, it produces the elder son. Judgy, critical, hypocritical. And neither is our goal. Neither is the end game. It's we want them uh, to have the right spirit toward the world um, that Christ commands them to. All right, the positive. Number two, empower young people to relate well locally and globally. Empower young people to relate well locally and globally. <laughs> so we, we need to build partnerships to reach those locally. Um, and the tendency is this. We send them on a mission trip, and I'm for mission trips. Some of them asked if we could do more of them. I'm all for that. But it's not just about helping them reach people on mission trips. How about reaching people in their backyard, over the fence and where they go to school and, you know, the, in their family, their cousins. And, and, and so uh, we want to partner with them in that and help them in that, to be in right relationship locally with those around them. Uh, many in our church want, many of the young people in our church want to make a difference. I can sense that in them. Some of them shared about a call to ministry or something significant uh, as it relates to, to serving God through the gospel. And our church has the power and the opportunity to show them why they feel so strongly about that. God's planted that in them and wants to use it through the local church to accomplish his mission for the world. And so we ought to be a part of that. Instead of judging the world and critiquing the world and condemning the world, we ought to take our young people and say, let's go reach them with the gospel, right? I'd love to see some missionaries come out of our church. Some of you parents, that's what you dread if you're not careful. You, you, I, I hope my kids doesn't kill anybody or do anything bad, but to go all in on church and ministry and, and, and the sacrifices financially that's going to have for them, we're just positioning our kids for economic success and leaving out the Great Commission. Empower them to relate well with the gospel locally and globally. Are we getting in the way or making a way for young people to serve their peers? That's what I've been thinking about. Are we getting in the way or are we making a way to help our young people reach their peers uh, with the gospel? Um, all right, so this final thought and we'll conclude. I had a um, pastor friend of mine who he was observing Paul's mindset as he went through the book of Acts. And uh, he said this, Paul looked to the next towns and Aquila and Priscilla were busy training the next teachers. And then he said this, what's next for you? Um, what's next for you? And what I'm saying to you today in this day, this Vision Sunday, is the next for you is the next generation. That's the next for me. It's to impact the next uh, generation. Um, Adolf Hitler, he was known for the Hitler's youth, right? These kids that would just mindlessly follow his teaching no matter how radical it had become. He often was quoted as saying this, he alone, who owns the uh, he, who, he alone who owns the youth gains the future. He alone who owns the youth gains the future. He was a madman, but he knew what he was doing. And he won um, the hearts and minds of the German people by starting with those who were the youngest. And so we must do the same for more noble and more Christ-honoring mission and purpose uh, in our day. We have the opportunity to impact the future when we are tempted to be doomsdayist or fatalist. The future regularly stares us in the eye through the profile of the next generation. They're looking at us. The future is looking at us. We are looking at the future. What will we do with the opportunities God has given us? So this question, and we'll pray, 
Will you choose to be actively a part of the regeneration of faith and ministry that we, God has given us by prioritizing warm community, young people and families everywhere, and being the best neighbors that we can be? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word.